As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. It takes a village to raise children, so it has been said. And these days, it is true that lots of family units are comprised of other parties besides just the parents who are helping rear children. That can be a wonderful thing for children, but it can also create confusion when the legal issues arise. Today, I have Holly Draper here. Holly recently argued and won a landmark uh, decision in the Texas Supreme Court having to do with parental rights. Holly is the owner of the Draper firm here in North Texas, and it is an honor to have her here. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So we're here today to talk about parental rights, and this is, you know, we're, we're talking about um, uh, parental rights as in relationship to other people who may have an interest in a child, and, and those other people may be grandparents, they may be step-parents, um, they, they may be significant others. What do we mean when we're talking about parental rights? So the parental rights that we kind of say it's a, a parent's God-given rights and they're protected by the United States Constitution are the rights to control the care, custody, control of your children, to decide educational decisions, medical decisions, to determine whether or not a grandparent is going to get to see them or get to spend time with them. Um, all of the decision-making authority related to children naturally rests with their parents. And that is constitutional. You said the U.S. Constitution has held, the courts have held that that is a right that, that courts cannot take away and legislators can't take away from parents. Yes, the United States Supreme Court has consistently held that parental rights are basically sacred rights that uh, it takes an awful lot to overcome. Um, all right, so who I wanna know who in your in your practice what kinds of non-parents um who are these people who, who that are challenging parental rights you can see a variety of people seeking custody that are not parents and there's different ways you do that you have to have it's called standing which means the legal ability to file a lawsuit so in order to have standing grandparents and other relatives can have standing if they can show that a child's current situation is bad. It's called the significant impairment standard where whatever's happening in their home with mom and or dad is significantly impairing their health or emotional development. So this can be, um, for example, like in the case of drug abuse, when, when both parents are heavily using drugs, um, grandparents can step in and that totally makes sense. But uh, if a grandparent just disagrees with, say, the way a mom or a dad is, you know, uh, doing school or feeding the children or, you know, criticizing how things are being done, they have a different opinion about how things are being done. That doesn't rise to the level. Is that right? It definitely does not. Now, with serious issues where there's serious problems, that gives those family members the right to file a lawsuit for custody. There are other people who don't need to show those serious issues exist in order to file suit. So for example, anyone who was living in the home with a child in their primary residence for more than six months, ending not within 90 days of whenever you file suit, 
if that uh, that non-parent had even minimal involvement in taking care of that child, they helped out occasionally, then they're in the door and they can sue for custody. So it doesn't mean they're going to get it. But right. if you invite your college roommate to come stay in your home because they're, uh, they're, they're maybe they just went through a divorce, they don't have anywhere to go, and you generously open up your home and invite that person to come stay, can they file suit? Yes, they can. Okay, so let's um, let's shift a little bit because I do want to kind of walk through this landmark decision, which was was a big decision that really helped protect parental rights, um, in Ray CJC. So who, who are the people who were involved in this lawsuit? So this case started out as just a very normal, boring, ordinary custody modification. I was hired by the father. The mom had filed a lawsuit to try to change their prior custody order. And this is normal, run-of-the-mill stuff happens every day in our right. world. <laughs> yes, and you know they had a prior order that had close to a 50-50 schedule, but the mom was the primary parent, and um, but she filed suit seeking to change that schedule and seeking to increase child support. So nothing was really happening in the case. The child was three years old at that time, and we were just chugging along on a normal case. And then we learned that the mother had tragically died in a car accident. And I initially thought, well, that's, that's the end of this case. And it definitely was not because first we had the maternal grandparents filing suit, seeking joint custody with dad. And then we had the mother's, the mother had moved in with her boyfriend 10 or 11 months before she died. And they'd gotten engaged a couple of months before she died. So when this tragic situation happened, like like go back to the time that that happened, where did the child go? I mean, what happened with the child? So she immediately went, with, she was with her father at the time of the accident and she remained with her father throughout all of this. Okay, so you're plugging along, dad now has custody. You're probably looking at how, you know, winding down a modification suit. How long was it until you realized, oh no, we have we have some other people who are knocking on the door? It did not take long. I don't remember exactly how long it was before the grandparents filed suit, but it was pretty fast after the mother had died. Okay, so the grandparents enter, and then and what happened with their case? So this case pointed out the strange state of Texas law where it was easier for the fiance the live-in boyfriend. Yes, who had only known the child for a relatively short period of time and had really not been very involved in her care. He was in, whereas the grandparents, because they didn't live in the home with the child, were out. So we were able to, we had a first court of appeals case where we were able to get the grandparents out. So there are different standards. You've got grandparents who can file suit they don't have to have lived with the child, but then you have a unrelated third party who just happened to be living in the house and it's easier for him to file suit. Why is that? That's a good question. And I completely disagree with that uh, state of Texas law, but that's the way it is. It, it was designed, I think, to give people who are actively living in the home with the child and taking a very active role in caregiving to give them more rights hear that, you know, the affidavit and the testimony about what was his involvement in caretaking was things like 
occasionally taking her back to bed during the night if she got up or occasionally or making her chocolate milk with breakfast in the morning. Nothing significant that you would consider a parent normally doing. Because the mom was in the home. So it wasn't like she, there wasn't any evidence that she had relinquished control to him, right? Right. So she was still making the significant decisions about doctor's appointments and where to go to school and all of those things. Yes. So mom and dad were always the decision makers and always had all of the rights. He was just there with mom giving her helping hand periodically. How long? So, so he filed suit and what are, what's your initial response? So we tried to get him kicked out when we got the grandparents kicked out and I thought, logically the grandparents should have had the better case but they didn't so grandparents were out he was in and then we went back and had a temporary orders hearing in front of the judge and she proceeded to give the fiance rights and possession periods of the child over the father's objections so let's talk about why this is so important because one of the one of the like critical rights as a parent is to decide who your child gets to spend time with and how much time they're spending and that's something that for grandparents can be really disheartening in a situation like this where they they don't get to see their grandchildren perhaps but in this case the dad was he was he allowing the boyfriend to see the daughter it really, he was never really given an opportunity for that okay. before everybody filed Because it happened so quickly. So the grandparents were always getting to see the child, but the dad was vehemently opposed to this non-family member having rights and possession of the child. Because really that can create a confusing situation for the child, I would think, when you've got somebody that, you know, isn't a family member and not necessarily going to be there for the rest of the child's life, who's now having rights of access. Yeah. And I think there certainly could be cases where, let's say there'd been a step parent who'd been living in a home with a child for years and very actively involved in taking care of them. And that is different than what we had here. Yeah. So it was the level of involvement. I mean, really not this wasn't somebody who had been doing all the carpool and, and the, the babysitting child care. Um, so you go to the temporary orders. And here's another thing a lot of people don't understand is, you know, we think we get to the final case right away. And that's what we're talking about. But there's a long period of time generally between the filing of the suit and the time we get to the final trial. I say generally, it's always a long period of time. I don't know when it's ever a really short period of time. But parties have the option to get relief right away. If they go to temporary orders um, and they'll put on their case and the judge will make a ruling. Of course, what is significant about temporary orders? What happens there? So in a temporary orders hearing, you get kind of the rules and what's going to happen while your case is pending. So here, the court made the fiance a possessory conservator, which meant that he had certain rights related to the child and also gave him a a stair-step schedule where he started out with a little bit of time on the weekends and then it was gradually going to increase until he had weekend overnight visits and longer visits. And so now dad is having to coordinate with mom's boyfriend, deceased mom's boyfriend with a whole, I mean, it's a whole nother level of complication I can only imagine in his life. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about this case was the way that he got in the door did not require that the mother died. So if the mother had survived, 
and she was kind of a, a revolving door of long-term live-in boyfriends and she broke up with him, he still could have filed this suit and had grounds to get in the door. Wow. And then if she moved in with somebody else, once it had been more than six months, that person has grounds. And how many people are we going to let in? Exactly. That can create quite um, quite a circumstance, which it did. I mean, even here. So the th- I, and one of the things I was wondering is, I mean, of course, you go to temporary orders hearing and now you have this this order that the parties have to follow. And that creates a new status quo. Right. So now you have a new situation that the child's having to adapt to. How long did you all how long was it between temporary orders at the time of final trial? So we never had a final trial in this case. Okay. We filed, it's called a mandamus, which is like an emergency appeal that happens in the middle of a case. So our Supreme Court case related to the temporary orders. Great. So we filed right away um, to say, sorry, um, in the Court of Appeals to say, you know, dad has constitutional rights as a fit parent. And there was no dispute. There was nothing bad about dad. There was nobody claimed that he was unfit or that there was anything he was doing wrong or anything like that. No addiction issues, not abusive. Good dad. He'd been actively involved in the child's life since she was born. So that issue was not on the table. So we argued that the United States Constitution protects the rights of fit parents to make decisions about their children, including whether or not they have an ongoing relationship with the mother's boyfriend or with the mother's parents. So the Court of Appeals punted because they'd already given us opinion that kicked out the grandparents. So that took us to the Texas Supreme Court. All right, so how long then was it from the temporary orders until you get the ruling from the Texas Supreme Court? So it was a long time before we got a ruling, but we were able to get a stay from the Texas Supreme Court pretty, it was probably about, I think it was four months after the temporary orders, we finally got a stay, which meant the temporary orders went away. So the entire time it was pending in the Texas Supreme Court, the fiance did not have any rights or possession. Okay, so that's that's good because of the emergency motions that you all had filed, you were able to sort of undo what the trial court had done. What is the significance of this case? How, um, I mean, it's definitely a landmark case. So I want you to kind of help us understand what does this mean for parental rights and for third parties? So what the Supreme Court said, the Texas Supreme Court said in this case was that if a parent is fit, then the trial court can't overrule what the parent is saying. So if dad wants the fiance out, the fiance has to be out. And if it's up to dad to make decisions related to his child. Now, if they had evidence that dad was unfit, he was a drug addict, he was abusive, he had never been around, those are the types of things that could be used to show he was unfit, then we may have a different ending to this case. So when now if non-parents come in and see me and want to know, you know, hey, I want custody of my grandchildren or I want visitation with my grandchildren or my stepkids or whatever the case may be, we look immediately to is this parent that's still in the picture or both parents, if they're still in the picture, are they fit? Are there, what are the skeletons in the closet of these parents? And our case didn't really say what you have to show to prove a parent is unfit. And that's kind of the next step the Supreme Court is going to have to take 
I think there's a lot of case law out there to support what that burden should be. And we'll see if they agree with me. Interesting. <laughs> and then do we know whether or not this is on the radar for the Supreme Court? It's definitely on the radar. So when, in our opinion, in CJC, there was one justice who did what's called a concurring opinion, which is she agreed with everybody else, but she wanted to add something extra. And she said, this opinion does not address the level required to prove a parent is unfit. And it, because it didn't have to, because there was no doubt about it. Our guy was fit. So there's now one case that's currently pending before the Supreme Court uh, out of Corpus Christi that addresses this issue. There's about to be another one pending in the Supreme Court out of Dallas. And the Court of Appeals have come to different conclusions about what that standard is. So we're going to need the Supreme Court to clarify that. So we just, you just talked about, um, I mean, NRACJC really dealt with the not with the non-related third party who's been living in the same house for six months or more. How is the standard different for grandparents? What do grandparents have to show and why did the grandparents in your case get kicked out? So before CJC, this stem all, we relied heavily on a case out of the United States Supreme Court. It's called Troxel. Troxel happened to involve grandparents. So after Troxel, which was a 2000 case, Texas put in kind of incorporated Troxel with respect to grandparents and other family members and required this higher burden of showing significant impairment, that the parent is unfit, that something bad is happening in this house with, the, with this parent or parents in order for them to even file suit in the first place. But those other standards were not applied to non-relatives who were getting in the door other ways. Okay. And so if you have, oh, I could just go on because there's, there's, when we say it takes a village, it really does. And the family dynamics are so, so, um, the, the, what, what am I trying to say? The options, <laughs> the people who show up with a vested interest in the children can be very diverse these days. Uh, yeah. And I think that's one of the issues that's going to have to be figured out along the way of what, you know, are there other people who truly have acted as parents for a child, even though they don't have, they haven't adopted and they weren't a biological parent? Are there, is there a certain set of people that we need to look to, to be in the door and have a legitimate shot at becoming a decision maker or having possession? Um, I stand very strongly on the parental rights side of this issue. And if they're unfit, unless the parent is unfit, non-parents should not be getting anything. Right, um, that makes a lot of sense. How long have you been practicing family law? I have been practicing family law since 2008. Okay, and um, what led you into um, appellate work? Luck. <laughs> <laughs> so this case, you know, it was complete luck that I had, I was representing him in a case that had nothing to do with an appeal, had no possibility really. It was not on the radar at all. This case would ultimately land up in the Texas Supreme Court. And thankfully the client had the trust in me to let me handle it. And I had a, a great mentor in Brad Lamorges who worked with me on the case and he helped me 
learn how to do it. And, <laughs> you know, by the end of our two mandamuses, I was fully confident on my own two feet and ready to go do more. And so you're doing, you're taking on more appellate work now. Is that right? Yes. I've gotten several appellate cases because of CJC, a lot of them involving parents who have had non-parents come in and be given rights or possession over their objections. Uh, will you also represent non-parents if the case, if a case came to you? I mean, are you just representing parents or do you feel like no, I would there could be situations where I would represent non-parents where there's a showing of a parent being unfit and it's really appropriate for those non-parents to be more involved in the child's life than the parent chooses. Yes, because there are certainly circumstances where unfortunately leaving the child with the parent isn't going to be good for the child. I mean, you know, we certainly accept that there are there are those circumstances. But would you have a good parent? Really, the the law protects that parent-child relationship. It does. And even if the grandparents or the non-parent might be a better parent, it doesn't matter because as long as that parent is adequately caring for their children, that's enough. Good enough is good enough. Yes. And that is, I mean, there's, there's a, there is a whole lot of, um, I mean, that's a fact by fact uh, analysis, right? So, I mean, whether good enough is good enough in the eyes of the court um, is something that gets litigated and, uh, gives lawyers work to do in family law <laughs> cases, right? Yes, and there are definitely differing opinions among different courts about what a fit parent is and what you should have to prove to get there. And there, there's a lot of, there was a lot of litigation related to grandparents from before CJC, where I think we can look to see what do we have to prove to overcome that fit parent presumption. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and coming and talking to us today about this landmark decision and about uh, the importance and sanctity of parental rights and what people can do if they're in a situation. I want to thank all of you for watching today, and we hope that you got a lot out of this program like we did. We will provide links to the Draper firm so you can learn more about Holly's practice. And of course, we would love for you to subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.